being a nihilist enough, think. But fuck the system! This installment of the Dookie Radio Show represents another step in becoming a truly multi-format podcast. And this time, with a difference. This is part two of our two-part interview with musician, raconteur, producer, technician, engineer, wine expert, synth whiz and all-round nice chap David Harmon. Gear geekery meets inebriation in a big way. In the best gear of our lives for that's the title of this double trouble episode Harmon and myself explore how synths and recording technology have shaped both our guest's life as a musician and as a person and in the style of the television series Drunk History David and myself imbibe in a manner that can best be described as proud and very respectful of the glories of red wine As the interview progresses, you may hear some slurring. And indeed, conversations may go off on weird tangents. So, in a roundabout way, this podcast should also have the tagline Drunken Geekery. And this should also serve as a warning. The gear geekery is full on, as is the wine consumption. In case you've not listened to part one of our interview with David Harmon already which is available on the previous podcast, Shame On You. This is akin to watching the film Grease 2 first and claiming to have genuinely taken in the experience. That said, Michelle Pfeiffer and Adrian Zmed did the best they could with what could only be destined as a failure. It's not their fault, but more about that another time. We begin part two of the best gear of our lives with the wine still flowing and over the next 80 minutes the two of us will explore being bores deep in a Yamaha DX7, the erotic appeal of Jean-Michel Jarre's liner notes, desert island synths, watching countdown in one's pants and the appeal of women in jodhpurs. This episode also contains a dookie radio show first an attempt at matchmaking via the medium of the podcast. Are you troubled by spots, blemishes and flaky skin? Well, download the Dookie Radio Show every Monday and your skin will be looking clear, radiant and luscious in no time. The Dookie Radio Show, your key to beautiful skin. Oh, hello, darling. Has anybody told you that you've got beautiful skin? Yes, all the time. The nationality of the wine being consumed has changed. We've moved from France to Spain. Mm-hmm. Rioja. Hola. Hola. And, uh, and we're being decidedly North American with the nibblies, which in this particular case, popcorn. Yeah. Yeah, popcorn and Spanish red wine. It's what... 
podcasts were made we're for. thoroughly international here. Yeah. This is what it's all about. I remember reading an interview with Phil Oakey of Human League. And initially, I underestimated his influence and role in the world of synth-heavy music, thinking he had a great fringe, very distinctive voice, and was not afraid to spread the love. Hey, is that a reference to him shagging those two boys in Human League? I didn't realise that. He was in hospital with an ailment that laid him low for a good nine months. But during that time, he had access to a Yamaha manual and some and possibly a DX7 which he learned how to program which would not have been fun <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, it's it's one of the, the the cruelest twists of synthesizer fate that probably the most complex synthesizer of all time the Yamaha DX7 has the flimsiest of user manuals of any synthesizer known to man it it can be only about you know 12 pages long and it sort of said things like yeah, you know, it's FMs, it's kind of, you know, there are algorithms and there are operators. Um, there are graphs that go up and there are graphs that go down. Fill your boots. And then that was it. <laughs> and it's one of the most fearsome technologies known to man. But, I mean, an enormously creative synthesizer and one of the defining moments of synth history. But it's cruel that it had such a small manual, whereas you discovered with your wave station, an enormous manual doesn't always help. Um, uh, it depends the, yeah. how things are presented, really. Absolutely. <laughs> Would Phil Oakey in hospital have been able to make use of a pair of Walkman headphones being used in into the DX7? Is yeah, there a headphone yeah, there's, there's a headphone socket, yeah. yeah, yeah. Ah. I mean, these were the first things that were proper, I mean, as we would see them, home electronics-type items. You know, the, the, the DX7 wouldn't look out of place in the modern home. Um, you could put one on the side. People might think it was an electric piano in as much as it was quite sleek. It plugs into the wall on a keyboard stand. You know, you probably have an X stand for it. Um, it... It was a. Pro I mean, it's what we think of now as a synthesizer in that it's beautifully finished in a sort of sleek metal case, um, and yeah, I mean, it was absolutely. It was the, the previous synthesizers before then really had been quite scary items. It'd be very much industrial, you know, steampunk looking things with maybe some wood finish on the edges, but there were big knobs and it was sequential circuits. Yeah, I mean, most uh, famously, to my mind, a sort of proper synth. You know, I mean, the, this the, is a man, yeah, a gentleman synthesizer, <laughs> a pipe smoking, slipper wearing synthesizer. Um, whereas it all became a bit slick and, and, I mean, not twee, but it was very, very much a different era that was introduced with the DX7. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's actually a, a thread that runs through a lot of the people who are iconic in that world in that they're not, they're not showmen. They're not, they have been in bands and they have been on stage, but they're not necessarily the life and soul of a party. They're more quietly spoken individuals who are happy to go off and fiddle. And that is the nature of synthesizers. I, I don't think it necessarily suits your brash individuals. I mean, I suppose a few cape-wearing individuals from the 70s aside. Um, synthesizers later became something that required a bit of study and a bit of thought and a bit of production. And, you know, it's, it, it's your, you know, it's the Peter Gabriels of the world, it's the Vince Clarks of the world, mm. who walk into any room, they're not going to set the world on fire in terms of their pizzazz, but they are fascinating people and they are intelligent people and they, are, they will spend hours meticulously noodling around and noodling is a word I use a lot just because it beautifully captures that sense of I don't really know where this is going but I'm just turning some knobs and listen to this and what happens if I do this and what happens if I try that and layer this with that and you have to be an endless experimenter 
Uh, it's the you know it, it it's the equivalent of someone in a lab with loads of different test tubes is fiddling around with stuff and suddenly they say Eureka you know you you're, you're fiddling around with this stuff and I let the machines take the lead on the whole but some people don't some people are, are very meticulous about saying I am setting out to produce a track that sounds like this and this is how it will work and these machines are totally under my control um, but when you listen to a lot of the the early stuff I must say the early stuff the early sampling stuff. It was exciting to hear the sort of music concrete that was being created in a modern way. Previous to that, it had been done by sort of putting reels of tape together and sticking loads of tape and getting very long bits of tape that run the length of a corridor in the radiophonic workshop. And suddenly the idea was that you could sample stuff into samplers and just play it off keyboards, which made it easier. But then part of the reason the original music sounded a certain way was all of that pain of creating it and all of the the time and energy and creative momentum that was required to make something like that. So the means do actually formulate part of the music. They they are another innate part of the music. They're not a, necessarily a composer, but they're certainly a constituent part of the production. The Radiophonic Workshop reference is quite apt because, in a way... In the same way that video killed the radio star, the synth killed the originators of the radiophonic <laughs> workshop. I, I mean, from that point of view, it did. But then again, it also brought the radiophonic workshop, I think, into the public eye a bit more because they were required to in- produce an enormous amount of music as their sort of experiment- experimentation arm vanished and it became just about pumping out music about the time of producer's choice at the BBC as well. There's this concept that you could go outside the BBC to choose music. So the Radiophonic Workshop were increasingly under pressure to produce an awful lot of music very quickly. So things like Doctor Who or Blake Seven in the later era of Doctor Who certainly were rushed out. You know, they they did not have a lot of time to put this stuff down. And there's a tie-in there where probably in the late 80s, I wrote... Well, I saw this thing in Sound on Sound about this then brand new concept they had at the BBC of this whole circular array of Yamaha DMP7s, the very first digital recallable mixers. And they had a hypercard stack in the Mac and they they were just doing some really cutting edge stuff and creating a studio that was repeatable. So when a producer came back an hour later and said, that stuff you were working on, can you recall it? Because we just need to change some of the levels. They could do it. They could genuinely press a few knobs and recall stuff into the samplers and um, they could get the, the mix back up on the DMPs, which incidentally sound terrible, but even by, you know, by today's standards, they don't even have a vintage charm about them. They just sound awful. So much noise for them. Not vintage, just <laughs> shit. <laughs> Now, that's a T-shirt. Yeah, um, I mean, Yamaha have produced some incredible stuff over the years, but I, I'm not sure the DMP lives in anything other than shame for its sound, but actually the look of it is quite beautiful. I'd happily have one in the studio, I just wouldn't turn it on. Um, how ridiculous is that? You'd have it to look at <laughs> yeah. for historical purposes. Mm. It was a very important piece of equipment, um, and I hankered after one like nothing else. You know, you could daisy-chain these things together, but as there was, as Yamaha pointed out, a slight delay when you did that. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Okay, so adding the human <laughs> element to a very uh, cold kind of format, fun, you know, and they, they did have a strange old sound to them, and the motorized faders were bloody noisy. So if we had them in a room with a live mic, all we could hear was <laughs> as the faders went up and down. But they, you know, it transformed the world. You know, the the, the concept that you could recall a mixer. You think, oh, hang on a minute, because it was before audio recording was easy in PCs, and then so this sense that you could just 
because that was the one gap. You know, you had all these synths and you could recall synths and you had patches and samplers and you could recall all that. But to actually get all the knobs back into the same position on your mixer was a real pain. And you ended up, you know, either China graphing or, you know, whatever, trying to come up with any plan you could. These days, I suppose you just take a picture with a mobile phone. You know, if you had in a retro desk, you just say, well, it's got to look like this. Um, back then, it, it was complicated. And so they had this hypercard stack. And so being the, the kid I was, you know, I shut in my bedroom. I thought, I'll see if I can go and see this thing. This intrigues me. And I wrote a letter to the Radiophonic Workshop. Um, and uh, I got a wonderful letter back from a, a fabulous guy called Brian Hodgson, who was then the uh, the head of the, uh, the Radiophonic Workshop, um, saying, thank you for your interest. And I, I fully expected it to be a sort of a letter of sort of, well, thanks, but we no. don't <laughs> go away. And he said, no, you know, you've clearly taken an interest in this stuff. Would you like to come up and have a look? And so the sort of, I, I don't know, whatever it was, 16, 17-year-old me thought, yes, please. And I, I went up and had a lovely afternoon chatting to him and the various people in the studios about the technologies they had available to them and what they were doing with it. And that, to me, is what the BBC was for. It's about technology for the people, you know, and, and it fully fulfilled its remit. I'm happy paying my licence fee for the rest of my life for that moment because he was so kind. He was He took so much time with me talking about why they love technology too and why it was so important for the programs they produced and why music in particular was so important when it came to technology you know that it was the one area where the technology could be deployed and to help the musicians be creative um, rather than it just being something that was was sort of mechanizing a process this was actually helping people be creative and um you know, you look, in terms of classic music, there wasn't so much great music coming out at that point because it was all so rushed. And, you know, listen to the plinky-plonky stuff on the Sylvester McCoy period of Doctor Who. I don't think anyone's going to look back at that and go, you know what, that was epic soundtrack. It was not. Um, but the sort of stuff the guys were doing back then was interesting and using this new technology, it was being wrung to, an, you know, within an inch of its life. Its neck was being wrung, but it, it managed to deliver. Um, and unfortunately, that was the dying throes of the Radiophonic Workshop. And um, you know, Mark Ayres, I think it's Mark Ayres, has, has, is a guy who has managed to go back and archive a lot of that. And he still does stuff with Radiophonic Workshop now. And it's all very cool. But um, it was inevitable, I suppose, that with the advance of technology, the Radiophonic Workshop's raison d'etre would disappear. That, that this concept of experimenting with sound and doing stuff that no one had done before you know, the stuff that John, da John Baker and Delia Derbyshire were doing up there was, was beautiful, it was interesting, it was unique. And it will always live in our hearts as those sort of things. You know, the end of the John Craven's news round bit that we all remember. <laughs> That's just mad, bit of radiophonic workshop magic off the end of one of, I think, John Baker's songs. And it, it's a quirky piece of music concrete, found sounds and messing around with stuff and, you know, the immortal sounds of Doctor Who, piano strings being scraped and just experimentation. It was exciting. It, it was a new era. Um, and I think we should all have stepped up to the plate a little more when that technology became globally available, that we you know, we all got our samplers and thought, right, well, we should be really creative and multi-sample all sorts of Indian flutes. Well, no, we didn't. We, we sampled farts, we sampled dog noises, we sampled dogs panting, played around with it for a bit and then bought libraries. <laughs> you know, that, it's, it's your pretty right much. about that. 
I, I understand all the dog samples, and I I appreciate <laughs> that. But it it's I mean I joke true. Think, but, you know, many people were experimenting a lot more, and and some of the pioneers of sampling were doing brilliant, brilliant things. But we we did kind of drop the ball a bit. And I, I don't want to be one of these guys who said the old days were better, but uh. there was a period when people really used that technology in a very interesting, exciting way. Some people in a music concrete fashion, you know, Art of Noise and the Trevor Horn and J.J. Entrelick and those guys were, were doing stuff that was purely exciting. Uh, and it was brilliantly innovative in terms of the way they were using the sounds, but also they were creating new sounds by chopping up stuff and using, yes, okay, library elements from the Fairlight, but also the way that they were creating the music was very interesting. And with Paul Morley's interest you know, on the Art of Noise stuff, it, they they created a whole new concept of music, you know, something that was very clearly mechanical and not trying to be anything but. Um, and so some people were taking it in that direction. Some people were genuinely sampling and, and creating fascinating sounds. I mean, you know, it, I suppose you've got things like Jar's Zulook, you know, which were pioneering in as much as they were mainstreaming sampling, you know, and to the point where, where how on earth did they do that? And then, of course, we've got the nightmare of Hard Castle's 19. <laughs> 19. Which lives in legend as being that thing most people talk about if you say to someone who's not musical, do you know about sampling? What do they mean, no, 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 19? 19. <laughs> <laughs> that was sampling. Anyway, it's a pity. He, he kind of utilised the technology to its most memorable version, annoyingly so, whereas the Trevor Horns of the world and using the Fairlight with Yes and um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Mm. I think because the, the mm. samples were a lot more musical, a lot of um, string stabs and uh, horn stabs, <coughs> it felt like to a mere fan of music that these could have been session people brought in and it was just prepared and processed differently. Yeah. Paul Hardcastles was just clearly... I had this device, I can make it go n n n n n n There was no hero's welcome. I certainly wouldn't have a go at him for that. It's uh, one of the most memorable tracks. And certainly you know, his thing for the, the Top of the Pop theme tune, The Wizard, was a lovely little piece of, of synth magic. And I, that those sorts of tracks live in legend. Everyone kind of knows them. Um, and they, they are epoch-defining. You know, There's that moment when that happens, everyone went, oh, it's that track. And of course, being on top of the pops meant everyone heard that sort of track, you know. And um, and that was a really interesting period. But I mean, you mentioned two tribes, and I, Trevor Horn is one of those people who, again, is a quietly spoken genius. You know, he's not someone you see interviewed all over the world. He's he is quietly spoken. He keeps himself to himself. But he, I've never met the guy. But everything you read about him just says you are, you know, one of those people who is quietly getting on with being brilliant, and. Fantastically, he's you know he's done very well with it. Uh, I really love that that he is clearly respected and has been for many years. And what was fascinating, I think, I mean, two tribes. I think the annihilation mix of two tribes is probably the greatest piece of electronic production of all time. Um, it's it's an enormously emotional track for me. I, I listened to that on tape. I wore out four cassette versions of it and I had to take it back to the shop and got another one and another one. I I had it. I broke it four times. I played it so much. It just went round and round and round and round. Um, it staggers me how beautiful that is in terms of the build, how it how it builds in its construction and the beautiful space in the stereo field, the, the 
the selection of the sounds, it's just so perfect. And dropping in, obviously, also the, I think it was Patrick Allen, or whoever it was who re-recorded those elements um, of the, you know, the nuclear warnings, the public information stuff. Um, it was so important for me, that song. To this day, I find myself structuring stuff in a similar fashion. I, I find myself, oh, it's that shaker, that two-tribe shaker, that that sense of foreboding that he manages to create um it, it was just beautiful absolutely beautiful and you know many other people involved in it. it's not just trevor but people in the room you know um and that whole era when when you have people like you know steve lips and andy richards out there doing incredible stuff um i, I mean jj a, a list of people none of whom i've met um all of whom i genuinely respect and and just i'm fascinated by and um they were really important for me and important i mean simply knowing they're out there knowing that people are out there making good music and making money out of making good music and making a living out of it was really important to me growing up because i thought this is a bit of a niche you know this is something you lock yourself away in a bedroom and do but to, to know there are people out there doing these incredible things and they also formulated a lot of the technology. I mean, that's what people forget now. You know, we're, we're in a world now where the manufacturers tend to make stuff and give it to people, and someone who's famous says, I use this. Well, of course you do. You've been given it. That's not quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the endorsement thing is, is painful, but when you look back at the days of the Synclavier and the Fairlight, I mean, particularly the Synclavier, its timing allegedly was pretty poor when they first created the sequences, and it was Trevor and his guys who helped them to improve the timing of it. Um, and... You know, it, it's they were so involved with the manufacturers in making the right kits, and the manufacturers would say, "Technically, we can now produce this." And then these guys would go back musically and say, "That's fine, but you've got to tweak this and tweak that and tweak that to make it even better." And it was all—it was this lovely that sort of back and forth, that virtuous circle of, pe of people doing good things. That was a unique time, and I'm not sure that will ever come back again. Yeah. It's a bit of a pity because, in a way, those. Um, I'm going to be nibbling on some popcorn, so the niceties of podcasts uh, recording and the informal but friendly surroundings of Dukey Ra Radio Show Studios will be making its presence known. And thank you, by the way. Oh. One for the dog. Mm. In a way... Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Two Tribes and that whole album, 1984-1985, became the, the, the zenith of technology being utilised in an incredibly epic, incredibly dynamic, incredibly exciting way. And because it, it wasn't bettered, it's almost as though it became the, if you will the downward spiral for the rest of that decade and, and the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, suddenly, everything sounded as though, you know, post-1985, everything that uh, was recorded in terms of drum sounds uh, resembled, you know, toms that were being hit really hard at Westminster Abbey. <laughs> and yeah, very true. Everything was I, gated and, and over the top and overwrought. And for a long while, I mean, music was quite difficult to listen to and hasn't mm. dated well there are not a lot of people who will you know cite a lot of recordings 
you know, which were made between you know, 1986 and 1988, 1989 as being, yes, yeah, yeah. that's the sound that I want. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a, yeah, absolutely right. It, it was the pinnacle. And I think we, we had that unique period and yeah, I'm always waffling on about this, but there was a unique time before that, before that technology came along in the eighties, we had a lot of very talented people in the music industry making great music. Suddenly, those people were handed the most incredible technology that allowed them to do all those things and take that step up and to, to repeat sections, whether we're talking about sort of digital multitracks that were being offset from each other or sampling. So you, the, the birth of the 12-inch single, the, the birth of repetition, the very structured track that's, that was broken down into sections and started simply and built up and so on. All of these elements were suddenly available to them and they could record sections into samplers, they can play them at bits and pitches, they can move them around. So they deployed all of this amazing technology with very talented musicians in the room and great producers. I mean, just the most incredible time. Um, and it was a, the moment at which two curves collided. You know, you've got this technology curve going up and arguably the the musicality, and I, mean, I don't say this in a negative way particularly, but the creativity curve going down, mm. they met at that absolute apogee and that sense of they've crossed here and that will never be as high again. Because after that, people like me came along, who's a noodler in a bedroom, and you're making music. Suddenly people say, oh, you're a musician. Well, I'm not. I'm not by any measure and I'm a musician. I'm a noodler. I, I fiddle about with stuff. And that suddenly became the norm. You know, as you started to drift into the 90s, yeah, sure, the, you know, the grunge thing took over and real music, in inverted commas, fought back against this apparent technologicalization if that's even a word um of it is of, now it is now i've coined it um of the industry but thereafter actually everything has really been about technology and yes it's fine to say you know you've got a band who do this and they just use this kit and they just use that kit but inevitably ultimately they'll end up going to a studio that's running logic is running pro tools everything gets put through the most aggressive maximizers you're straight into l2 in waves or whatever a little bit of exciter, trying to be the loudest, trying to be the hardest, winning the noise war, particularly with dance music. You know, you, can, you submit a, a dance remix to anybody, the first thing they'll do is compare it in level to all the other mixes they've had from other people. And if it's quieter, they'll think, oh, that's not as good. I mean, I don't think I'm overdoing it there. I think that is genuinely where we're getting to. It just seems like everything's louder than everything else. Um, and there's, there's almost this sense of we're being led into a certain direction as soon as you come into the studio you're no longer writing a great song or trying to put down interesting stuff you're trying to produce a finished product to the point where you'll have five or six tracks down and someone says oh can you put can you put a mastering on that can you put some sort of plug in that just makes it bigger can you can you maximize it make it louder make it bigger well yeah we haven't finished yet <laughs> all sorts of stuff we need to add and it's a it's a weird thing that they want that instant gratification of a mastered multi-band compressed track that immediately sounds big and fat and interesting well okay well we'll get there you know that's fine and it, it's a it's a weird thing that we've now we're, we're trying to deploy all this technology all of this amazing processing power almost ahead vintage again everyone's talking about vintage and all the plugins all the that's what i say all well, probably 50 60 percent of the plugins are focused on recreating vintage this vintage that turn this knob for more classic analog 
well, it's daft, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it, it just seems weird um, that we've turned back on ourselves so aggressively to a time where what they're forgetting is it was the people who made great music mm. using this new technology was, that was put in front of them. Yes, of course the technology had an impact, but you can't just turn a knob and say, you know, turn the art of noise knob. <laughs> you need some people in a room who think in a certain way. Hey, can you put, can you toin that uh, Paul Morley knob up, please? <laughs> <laughs> but you ended up, I mean, you know, we ended up in that world where, I mean, it still is now, library sample CDs are available, and they will, you know, one of the sounds will be called Art of Noise Drum 1, Art of Noise Drum 2. It's all fine, but exactly. Yeah, you got all your close to the edit stuff and beatbox and so on. It, it's... It's weird that we now have this sense of, if I'm going to be a musician, what I need is all of the sounds every musician's ever had, then I shall have those as my library, and I shall be better than them because I will write better music with their sound. And it's a dangerous thing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I simplify for the purposes of making a point, but that depresses me a little bit. And in theory, I don't know if you've seen it on, certainly on YouTube, but there's been this real drive now to go back to patchable analog synths you know the old-fashioned days roland have released the era synth range they're old-fashioned modular synths so this is the old days of a filter module and a delay module and a core unit that has an oscillators in it in theory it's everything i'm passionate about it's everything i should love i do like it and it's great that people are fiddling with it but weirdly everything that people send me everything people send me links to all the videos that people send all the stuff i get private messaged is always about the way it looks or they've made a weird sound and that's all very cool but i'm always thinking yeah where's the music have you written a tune around this <laughs> but I, I, again i don't want to be that person who sort of sounds like an old fart and just wishes that and i i don't know i don't even know what i mean by that other than it doesn't turn me on like it used to if i sat in front of a fairlight now i'd still be massively excited by the page r sequencer it's the most basic thing in the world compared to what we've got today but it makes you work in a certain way this is back to this theory that you worked with a profit five in a certain way because certain knobs were right in your face mm -hmm. you work with you work with a jupiter eight in a certain way because the user interface is laid out in that way you tended to go for you know, the, the resonance, the VCO, you go for the arpeggiator, it's right there. So a lot of stuff, you know, Rio was was off the arpeggiator because it's like sitting there saying, arpeggiate me. It, you would have to work pretty hard to find the arpeggiator in certain modern synths. And so you're unlikely to head straight for that unless there's a preset. And so I, I'm kind of intrigued by that whole, the technology, how the technology defines the music that you make, not just in its sound, but in its interface. I, I love all that. They're wonderful old sequences that were very textual. They were very, they're almost like Microsoft Excel. You know, the, the streaming stuff. Dr. T's KCS is one that was particularly close to my heart. It was just streaming numbers and a cursor flying around. But I made some of the best music of my life fiddling around with that um, because it spoke to me as a, a kind of engineer and a, a bit of a geek. And I, it meant that by using multiples of 16 and 48, I was able to make music. It's fascinating to me. I, it just opened my eyes. And yet I sit in front of the latest version of Pro Tools, which has cost a lot of money. I've got loads of plugins. I've got all the power I always dreamt of. And the music isn't as good. Or I have to work harder to do it. It's ludicrous. Mm. Do you feel that there, there will ever be a movement away from 
the loud mastering where somebody may wear a badge saying, I haven't mastered this. <laughs> Turn it down, dickwad. I mean, yeah, the mastering thing is a, is a very specific thing. Is I, I, I would love to head back to a day where you didn't have to master something before you played it to a label. You know, they, you absolutely have to now. Uh, that, yeah, I mean that is really that's people, a reality. People want that finished product. They want to know exactly what it's going to sound like. They don't want that sense of it's a beautiful song or it's a great demo. Or, I really appreciate what you've done there. Let's develop it. And you know, okay, it's about money. It's about time. It's about the commoditization. It's disposable. So on, so on, so on. However, it would be lovely to think you didn't. In the mastering, should be a final stage of a process that's done by somebody who really understands what they're doing. Once you've finished the product. And it's just a case of making sure it sounds as good as it can everywhere. That is the joy to me of a great mastering house, is making them very most of a track and making sure it doesn't sound bad anywhere, but it sounds as good as it possibly can in as many places as it can. I think it's that's a dying art mm. in the sense of how it's employed the way it should be. But ultimately... You know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, you see, you know, Bob Ludwig's name over tons and tons of things and other mastering engineers of, of note. Yeah. The idea of there being a mastering house that people go to in 2015, I can't help but think it's some online affair where you upload your track and somebody has the algorithms to enable <laughs> it's, already happening now. it's already happening now i've had emails from people saying oh i've just bought this plugin or oh, you should check out this plugin and it's a plugin that says you know master your track and there are also online places you can upload it to and it just sort of comes back and you think what what so is there now an algorithm for just brick walling your track and mm. saying that is how it should sound unfortunately i think we might have reached that point um, the plugin's called Steamroller. We're going to make it <laughs> fucking loud. It's called Label. <laughs> and it's exactly what you need to take it to a label. Uh, I don't know. It's it's depressing to think it, but I think we have reached that point. You, know, we, you may be absolutely right that actually the, the fight against that will be not to master it. But then the problem with that is if you don't brick wall it, now immediately, because the benchmark is that loud, pumping sound, your album will sound somehow flaccid compared to it. And... In extreme, that can be a problem. I listen to some of my old, God help me, CDs, and you stick that in the car, you find yourself really cranking the level up because it was simply very quiet. It, it may not even have been recorded originally for digital, so you know it might have been a transfer, but even those that were early on CD are very quiet CDs, and they have good dynamic range. This is very lovely. But then you come to something like you know the latest Muse release, and it blows your ears off. They've managed to get so many more bits into that there CD. Um, and it just sounds big and fat and enormous, but it doesn't give me the listening pleasure. It doesn't have the dynamic range. Um, and you lose some of that nuance. You lose the detail. And one of the things I love about synth tracks particularly, I mean, I suppose that's close to my heart. I'm sure it's true of many other genres, but particularly for synth tracks for me, is that detail of every sound. If you have four or five really beautiful sounds intertwined with some electronic percussion in there, it's wonderful. You don't have to brick wall that. Now, you could, okay, that's absolutely fine, but it's wonderful if you don't. If you just warm it up with some classic, you know, two-to-one ratio over the, over the mix and it's just warmed up in the old SSL way, you know, the old-fashioned way, um, rather than that multi-band compressor that we all tend to reach for now. If someone says, can you make it bigger? Yeah, okay, we can flatten it all out. Um, 
but I, I, I'm, I'm slipping into old fart syndrome. I, I, as I get older, I, I realise that I'm doing that more and more. I'm having conversations with, with kids about stuff. And I say kids, you know, they're 30. <laughs> but I, I, they're talking to me in terms of, you know, I've, I've done this track. It sounds huge. Listen to this. And it, it does blow your ears off. There's no doubt about it. But it doesn't have that passion, that excitement. Um, I... You know, it's wonderful to see that Dave Smith is producing incredible instruments again. You know, this this guy is a, a legend and is probably one of the most important people in synthesizer history. Um, and yet, I'm not necessarily going to go out and buy one of his new synths because the interface is very different these days. Yes, it has still got knobs on it, and he has really stuck to the old the old idea. But I still think that if you're going to do that you might as well stick to the old kit because it drove you to write in a very specific way. He, quite rightly, has put a spin on it, which is saying it is as you remember it, but there's a lot of new stuff in there, so it's still saleable in the modern world. And they, he can never commercially produce a synth that I would want to buy again because it doesn't work in the modern world. It's not what people expect. In the same way as if... Um, Kim Ryrie, the uh, Fairlight guy. Mm. If if he came back and produced the Fairlight Series Three again, people would just laugh at him. <laughs> yes, okay, there'd be a few primitive technology. Yeah, there'd be a few people Why? like like me who would rush out and buy one just for fun. But it it wouldn't have a commercial place, and yet the interface makes you write in a very specific way, and that fascinates me. I, I'm this is where I come from a techno- technologically led background. I. I create music because it fell into my lap. I don't create music because I'm a musician. And that's all. I love the sound of machines. And and making music, for me, is about the interface with machines. And you reach for certain controls. You reach for certain knobs. I I love, love, love the fact that on the top of a DX7, or particularly the DX7 Mark II, because it was in a higher contrast, the algorithms are on top of the synth. Within seconds, I can look at that thing and have just as much perception of what the what any knob tweaking I'm going to do will do as it does on a Profit 5 because they've given you exactly the right piece of information. I love that. And it means I reach for certain things, I choose certain algorithms because I know they're very controllable quickly as opposed to the others, but they're all out on that front. They're all mapped out beautifully. And that's all. It, it's so enticing. That, that to me, is just as beautiful in a way as, as the Jupiter 8 channel path. It's just as easy to see what I'm going to do. But that's because I'm a geek, because I learnt that way of programming. To me, that is beautifully transparent. And yet it is a fiendishly dirty and dark world to be in once you start noodling with all those pages. You've got one data slider and a tiny LCD. <laughs> you know, it's, not pro, it's, it's nothing like a Pro Tools plugin where you just open it, you get a million options. So you will inevitably go for certain things first. But that means you inevitably create that DX sound very quickly. Whereas if I use FM8, you know, Native Instruments reincarnation of the DX7, I ironically find it very difficult to produce the original <laughs> DX sound. So you would find it easier with the DX7 yeah. to deliver the DX7 sound than the all singing, all dancing. You've got every every avenue to <laughs> manipulate this online without a tiny little screen it's ridiculous to actually absolutely deliver the ridiculous. same sound but absolutely true I, I find myself whimpering as I say it but I, I have all the tools at my disposal here to have 
every DX7 sound ever known to man, plus more. And indeed, a lot of the cauldronated sound comes from blends of the FM8 with all sorts of other stuff. I love it. I love the FM8. I love the fact that it creates these mad sounds. And it's mathematically beautiful, and you can put all sorts of harmonics and interest in it. However, when it comes to sitting in front of a synth and messing around and just quickly producing a sound, I was so fast on the DX. And yet, when I am faced with the FM8, there are so many options, so many knobs. And yes, they have given you a quick page to get over the problems and say we can just turn the timbre up and down and volume up and down. Yes, you can. But there was an immaculate beauty to the simplicity of the algorithm structure on the top of a DX, whether it was the you know, Mark I or Mark II. You knew that you just went in. Yes, okay, you had to work out which of the 32 buttons was the operator on or off that you wanted, but within a couple of button presses, you'd dramatically change the sound. And you knew that you went to a certain algorithm, tapped a couple of keys, you'd kill the high harmonic of something. And that became part of how you made music. You said, I love that sound, but it's too bright. Click, click, click. Not as bright. <laughs> now, okay, if you wanted to noodle any more, it would take you 25 minutes to go into the right levels and go, I should just tweak this and double click on yes. It, it, it did take a long time to edit a DX7, don't get me wrong. But what it meant was you went for certain things very quickly. They, these guys were clever. The, the stuff they put one click away was the key stuff. The important stuff. Yeah. If you've only got 32 buttons on a synth, what will they control? And that's not a question that the manufacturers of modern plugins have to answer. Unfortunately. So what happens is you double click on something, you get a million knobs up, all of which are flashing and you just pointing at you in certain directions. And I think, Jesus, God, you just honestly. want the knobs that count. Hmm. Only in as much as it will drive me in a certain direction. And that for me was the sound of that synth. If I sit in front of a Jupiter, if I sit in front of a Prophet 5, if I sit in front of a Pro 1, I'm turning certain knobs because they're there. And it gradually fell apart as we went into sample and synthesis because there were so many pages. I mean, the Wave Station was one of my favourite synths of all time because I could create incredible string textures on it. To this day, I annoyingly Korg, and Korg if you're listening please for God's sake produce an AAX version for Pro Tools because I'm kidding myself I bought the Legacy Collection and transferred all of my sounds um, into the Legacy Collection which is a, the original plugins under VST um, it was my great library of interesting synth, um, string sounds, some of which were on Dave um, they never made it to Cauldronated because when I went up to Pro Tools no <laughs> Um, oh. So yeah, anyway, I mean, that's just my own personal tragedy, but um, the Wave Station was an incredible tool for creating string sounds. I, I've never come across anything like it. It didn't have resonant filters, so it wasn't a great synth, but God, it made some absolutely beautiful textures, and it became a unique part of the arsenal. You knew exactly what you were doing with that, but it, when you went to a page, you had to press so many buttons to get into any of the menus it was Hobson's choice which menu you went into first. You didn't sense, I'll just tweak the filter. A couple of clicks, tweak the filter. It was click, 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 double page, yes. Click, page, yes. Click, turn the knob, move the slider. And by that point, you couldn't remember what you went in for. And it meant, and that's what's happened now, is that everything has every parameter 
And so nothing has that sense of this is my characteristic sound. Yes, of course it was driven in part by the channel path, by the number of oscillators, by the choice of chips. You know, was it the Curtis whatever chip, the CM filter chips? Which chips did you choose? Of course, that was all a factor. But the key thing was how did you make changes to a sound? What sequence of events led to that? Which particular parameters were you led to first? What were you most likely to turn? And it was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, I'd imagine airlines or airline manufacturers, aircraft manufacturers spend years with billions of pounds on focus groups and design engineers working out which buttons to place where. The synth guys were way ahead of all that. <laughs> by accident or by design, I don't know. But God almighty, you sit in front of those early synths and you think, I know exactly what I'm doing here. It's not that it's got fewer functions, it's that everything I need is right here. And that's what the DX did. Ergonomics. Than, Ergonomics yeah. in yeah. terms of its limitations. A couple of clicks away, you have access to the bits which can't. Yes. And that's a thing of beauty. But um, what would your desert island synth be? What would your desert <laughs> island setup be for creativity? This isn't about... Um, loud recordings. This is all about on your desert island with solar-powered technology so that you can power, <laughs> so have, have power. however have some many power. modules you wish. And have some headphones. Yeah, okay. Well, synth-wise, desert island synths. Let, let, I mean, let's say for the sake of argument, space permitting on my desert island. You have a, it's, it's a sizable island. Okay, I, I'll support engineers available. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because uh, I would say, okay. A couple of the wave station people have been out of work <laughs> since that failure. They'll be there in a little grass skirt on yeah. the side with a screwdriver. So. Absolutely. Hola, Mr. Hanimer. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, okay, so I think the greatest synth of all time, purely because it looks beautiful and sounds as good as it looks, is the Memory Moog. Or oh, memory moog. If we're being American about this, I, it's no. What is the proper pronunciation? I've been every time okay. I go for one, <laughs> I get corrected. I, I think okay. I, the American pronunciation appears to be moog, but every time you say that, people kind of screw up their face and look at you like you're something. I of thought pervert. it was the other so, way around. I thought the Americans said moog, and we were <laughs> supposed to say moog. I honestly don't know. Did, I, I'm going to say memory moog. Um, so cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, the memory move, simply because it looks beautiful. It has the, the perfect rake, as we discovered earlier. You know, it's all about how the bic rolls off it. Um, and it's just mesmerizingly beautiful, whether it's doing a pad or a bass. It was the original all-rounder that could just produce wonderful sounds. Okay, if you, if you just had one on its own, it's a bit bleak. You would need more around it. You need some effects units, you know, didn't have built-in effects. And later software editions added all sorts of gizmos, but in its basic form, absolutely beautiful. Um, I, I, I would have to have one of those. I would need a Jupiter 8, because a similar reason, but it's a Jupiter 8. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you want to be Nick Rose. I, uh, well, well, I don't know. I, there is something beautiful about that synth. It, it is... I love the fact they went for those primary colours. It was so in keeping with the TR of its time, you know, the TR-808. 
the whole concept of the time. They went in the other direction and said, we're going to do bleak stuff. It's fundamentally black. We're going to put some jovial colours on it, which is a weird little twist, a little bit of manga going on in synthesizers of the time. I mean, where did that come from? Then they produced the DX7, which is like a, just a blank sheet of nothing. Um, so there would have to be a DX7, but it would be the DX7 Mark II, because I hate the membrane switches on the DX7 Mark I. The DX7 Mark II has a very pleasing, clunky switch. You can push that switch and feel pleased about yourself. How do you feel about moving away from the, the desert island synths? How do you feel about... <laughs> That's not going on for too long. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel about... <laughs> we will, we will, for God's sake, we will return there. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, Brian Eno and his employment exclusively of DX7s? Mm. Yeah, this is a man who was at the vanguard of analog technology in a non-musician way he was there almost in a in an art of noise type of kind of paul morley guys with um roxy music yeah. but in the, the the 90s i believe and today the work that he's doing with carl from underworld the dx7s are there he knows how to use them therefore he uses them that is i mean well you summed it up brilliantly there he he epitomises everything that I love about synthesizers. He's gone balls deep into a synthesizer and learnt everything about it. And that's something that has just vanished amongst many of us these days. I mean, purely the, the sheer number of synths and plugins that we're all faced with these days. We tend to go, oh, there's some great presets here, some great presets here, so I'll tweak this and tweak that. And you tend to go for a certain type of sound from a certain type of synth, or if you're looking for a certain type of sound, you'll head to that synth. Now, what he's done fantastically is to really understand a synth more. I mean, just go so deep into it that he has balls deep. I think let's say that. Let's say that again. <laughs> balls deep. Balls deep. Um, and I really celebrate that because he's done things with that instrument that pushed it to its limits. But equally, it's meant that he's made some of the most hauntingly beautiful music. Uh, the stuff he did for NASA was just unbelievable and it's mesmerizing because it's so mathematical it's so clean but harmonic it's interesting but it's bleak i, I mean it, it's so many adjectives that are contradictory you can throw onto tracks of his i would love to say that the dx7 sounds like this and play them a brian eno track but you can't because he pushes it so far that I love that. And the fact that also on some of his early work, he's actually credited with DX7 programs, colon, Brian Eno. I mean, that is magical. Back in the day when you could be credited for a particular synth. <laughs> I mean, this is what it's about, isn't it? I used to... Uh, let, okay, well, let's be honest. When most kids were out there looking for that porn in the woods, I I was the guy who was kind of touching myself to the, the synth list on a Jean-Michel Jarre album because he would have this long <laughs> list of each track. I was trying to guess which sound was which synth on which track because he, he would list which synths he'd use on which track. And that, that's gone now because everyone's just using all the same stuff, you know, or some stuff that the engineer turned up with. You know, no one really knows. Um, and, I, and much as they may care about it, by the time it gets to the album, it's all about, you know which trousers they're wearing on stage and you know whether they're interesting or got to be happy. I was wearing red trousers, but I was also playing on a neighbour high yeah. and deal with it. And I said it on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it's a very different sort of approach. And 
I, I love all that. And there, there's a thing that I, I sort of started to adopt in a way in my emails, which is a bit quirky, but um, I loved on the original artwork of a lot of the Frankie stuff, there were tiny little bits of text hidden away in the sort of the gatefolds and things that would just say things like, for those with an eye for the finer detail, we salute you. It's moments like that where you just think someone's gone deep into this and thought they care about you. Yeah, there's They're this little thing. You. There's this there's this bloke in a bedroom somewhere reading every square inch of this damn thing, um, and I don't know. It's, it's about that detail. We, I love. I, I've actually stopped buying plugins because I've I wanted to force myself, particularly with the coordinated thing, to push myself to learn everything about everything I had, and that's still an ongoing process. I, I feel. With the plugins now, I'm probably about 70% of the way there to learning them properly. The way that I know a Prophet, the way that I know a Jupiter, the way I know Moog, Moog, Moog. Um, I know those instruments inside out, but I, the, 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 I can honestly say the plugins I'm still learning. I feel the DX, because of my experience on, on Les Mis, I, the DX I, had to, I got to about 90% back then. I wasn't Eno, but I was... 90%. Is, I, is Eno 100%? I think he is Mr. DX. I mean, if, right. <laughs> if you had to enshrine him in stone somewhere, um, I, that would be it. I mean, <laughs> nobody is more Mr. DX than him. On Brian Eno's tombstone, knew a fair bit about the DX7. <laughs> you know, I, I had a, quite a big birthday a couple of years ago, and I honestly toyed with the idea of... Tr- not trying to find Brian Eno. <laughs> that would be very strange. Um, of trying to find a DX1. I don't know if you know of this beast, but the, the Yamaha were famous for sort of starting with the, the smallest number in the range would be the biggest. That would be an enormous thing. And then they gradually sort of make smaller instruments along the range. Mm. So they, they started with the seven, thinking, well, we'll go up a bit, we'll go down a bit. Seven's a safe place to start. Then they did the five. Well, actually, no. Then they did the one at the same time, which is this great weighted version so weighted piano keys version um, with two DX7s in a box basically so it's only two DX7s but it's monstrously expensive it was about 20 grand at the time and probably it would cost you a lot more now if you can find one because they only made very few of these things something like 100 units worldwide um, Blind. Th- these are sought after like nothing else the only time you tend and to see Brian, I mean, Brian Eno has every one I mean, he's probably I don't know he probably lives in one I mean, of the no, to be fair though every time he, he- I've seen him on stage. He has the pedestrian-looking, ordinary. You might as well. There is, there is absolutely no point in buying a DX1 apart from that personal perversion that would, it would give me an enormous pleasure. There was one on. If you look up on YouTube, if you go to YouTube, you can see the Pet Shop Boys playing uh, "Opportunities" on the whistle test. I mean, that we're going back to sort of '86, something like that. When right. I there. And Chris Lowe's playing one. It, it's just a battleship of a synth. It's huge. And back then I thought, one day you shall be mine. Oh, yes, you shall be oh. mine. <laughs> and, I will have you. And what I didn't realise is I only made 100 of these bloody things and they're probably now about 50 grand if they work. Um, and there is, this is where it comes back to that totemistic thing. It's nothing about the sounds. You can get all the sounds, as Brian has adeptly demonstrated, from a DX7 Mark One. You, okay, you might need two of them or track it, but you're going to end up with the same sounds as a one, so what's the point? But the one was such a piece of furniture. It was such a beautiful moment of madness on Yamaha's part. What they realised finally was if you want to layer one, all you need is a slightly longer keyboard. So they created the DX5, which had the 76-note plastic key, so it's like a DX7. Um, 
but it's two DX7s in a box and it's tourable and it's beautiful and it's still quite expensive so it still has reasonable resale value now but the DX1 has gone off the chart because it was one of those ludicrous moments where Yamaha said well I'll just make this loads of people will buy them and no one did but they are beautiful and they remain museum pieces now and so it wouldn't be a great desert island synth because it would almost certainly fall apart and god knows we've got sand in it that's why i asked about the service engineers because i would also have a fairlight series 3 with the original monitor which would almost certainly not work and certainly not work after a day on the sand right so, so but the jupiter that's uh the jupiter you you'd have some that could deal with desert island conditions no troubles at all uh, yes i mean it's a rugged beast. I mean, iron... that's dealt with every tour known to man I mean, yeah yeah I, i'm reasonably confident so that's one of your sins what would you have as a drum machine or means to produce drum or percussion sounds okay well i mean for, for all time's sake for media's sake i'm gonna say there has to am i allowed one, multiples or just the one? Oh no you can have multiples Very absolutely good. yes okay so it would, be, it would be an rx5 um and a lindrum because Ooh, going lin yeah right. only, only because it's such a part of so many of the tracks that i love i i just can't be without it the way that you can just fiddle about with the accent slider while you're programming stuff even after you program stuff and give it a feel yeah exactly that sense of pushing mm. a groove a bit just by moving a slider he has a natural feel i mean to the point where now my um some of the grooves that are in pro tools are, you know are thanks to him and the mpc so you know i, I when i select mpc 50 7 percent for a little bit of groove it's Roger Lynn looking over my shoulder saying, yeah, that'll do. I mean, you, on the shoulders of giants, we build these tracks. And he had a magnificent feel. I say he's had. I mean, he's still alive as far as I know. <laughs> At the time of recording. Roger, <laughs> give us a bell. Please text in. Uh, if you're <laughs> a Roger Lynn. There's a desert <laughs> island that needs your help. <laughs> Almost certainly some servicing. <laughs> um, but yeah, the original Lindra. So yeah, quacky. Um, and you know what? The Korg DDD1. I'm going to put that on the list because it was on Rock School and it gave me a horn as a kid. That was all. I looked at it and thought, that is a drum machine. The DDD1 was <laughs> the Mac Daddy up drum machine. Originally, you, back in the day. I yeah. Mean, it was Korg. So you, had, you could slot in cards. Yes. You could go a bit eclectic. You, could you have, had cards yeah. that um, had specific sounds. You, you know, there was, uh, I think, the, the, like, all the, the West Indian sound. Yeah, there, there was a lot of sort of slightly awkward Jim Davidson type cards you could yes. plug in. <laughs> <That was, laughs> <laughs> there was slightly. I, I know that, that this drum machine well. I, I had one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there, but they. They also, they tried desperately not to say this is the Roland TR-808 card. So they had to sort of do things like electro-percussion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Is that, I think it's electro-percussion one <laughs> and electro-percussion <laughs> two. The drum machines you didn't buy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm, sounds a bit like a TR-808. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 You'll find no. that's electronic drum sound one. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean... Actually, one of the beautiful things, and this is the chaos of the original stuff, and, you know, this may be an urban legend, I don't know. It's a good story. The original guy who built the TR-808 
had was it's still to this day if he's still alive now <laughs> time of recording um he's in a retirement home with roger lynn can we just press the space bar again no mr lynn it's time for bed come on one more, go, one go, one more. let no. me hit that accent come on. <laughs> we slide that <laughs> oh, yeah. um he, he was disappointed that it didn't sound enough like real drums. Yeah, that was what they set out to do, and yet they created this monster that converted the world to elect- electro, you know, as we mm. know it. And it's it's such a piece of legend, and yet the person who designed it was never happy with it. And it goes back through so many things in human history. All these people who've created things at the time, they were disappointed, they walked away, they weren't happy, and yet everyone else looks back and goes, well, it's amazing. Um, and that is... A real frustration that the the greatest minds of our time who've created these incredible things aren't as celebrated as they could be. Roger Lynn, he's where is he now? He's, <laughs> he should be. With he said, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't having, think having some wine. I don't think he's a milkman doing the round around. You know, I think he's doing all right. I think it's okay. Right. I mean, I don't want to speak for him. You know, Roger, please get in touch. Um, I mean, is his desert island the Isle of Wight or something? Well, that's Mark King's desert island. Well, no, that's that's his <laughs> Isle of Birth. But <laughs> he is a god there. You know, they have effig- well, effigies is the wrong word. <laughs> have inflatable Mark Kings at the airport. I'm sure. True. Bass. <laughs> How low can he go? Now, when I first met you, yes. prior to our introduction, oh God. Bob Rosser said... Don't give him wine. Dave Harmon. No. He's a nice guy. For what it's worth. I think you guys can get on. He's a bass player. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that, that's over-enthusiastic on Dave's part. I'm a... Yeah. As close as I ever got to playing an instrument was bass. I, I had to play enough keyboards to stand up on stage in some early bands and prod around some chords. Um, but somehow I was introduced to the music of Mark King, thanks to Andy Brown at Soundcraft. Actually, it was my during my Soundcraft years. And I, I really got into that groove. And Andy was a bass player, a very, very good bass, bass player. Um, and I got fascinated by the sense of a drummer who was playing bass I, mm. I, I thought that really interested me that sort of blend of the two worlds and so I bought myself a bass from the music shop um, you know but years ago I bought this bass and it was sitting there and I'd never played it um, and when Andy said all this I thought well I've got a bass I'll dig it out and have a play and it was completely the wrong bass it was a Charvel <laughs> from, from the days late 80s Charvel pointy at one a hair end. metal. Uh, uh, yeah, but absolutely a metal bass. So the idea of doing some... Great neck, though. They're really playable. Delicate. I mean, looking back on it, a lovely bass, which I sold on eBay many years ago for not enough money. Um, but it introduced me to this whole concept of slap and a lot of hammer-on on the neck and how do you create something as fast as Mark King was playing. And it became a fascination for me as to how to create that rhythm. And to this day, I find myself, when I'm building the coordinated grooves or any sort of grooves on Pro Tools, I'm playing on my knees. I'm slapping away. I'm doing it now, please, radio fans. Um, I, I find myself grooving away like that, thinking, where are the gaps? Where where would I put this upbeat? Where's the, where's the upbeat? Where's the groove? Where's the feel? I really want to play one of those synthaxes from the 80s, which is like a guitar, but playing right. MIDI. I, I sort of just think if I could play that in, like that's sort of where my where my groove is, is on my right thumb. So um, I fell in love with that style of music. And the DX1 that I didn't buy 
is the progenitor of a wonderful purchase I have made recently, which is on its way of a rather lovely yes. status base. You, you're going status, status. I'm going status. Keeping it British. <laughs> keeping it Mark King. Well, even better than that, yeah, the lovely thing is, because it, I mean, it's, a, it's a bit of a ropey website. When you look at their website and you think, hmm, is this one man in a cupboard? And it kind of is. But it, that's what I love about it. This is not some international institution and you send them an email and you just automatically get some manufactured base. You're chatting to him, you know, and... Rob sent me an email back and we were chatting about what I wanted and what it should look like and what sort of neck and what length and so on. And I'd seen one in that sort of classic school kid sense. I'd seen one in his shop window on the website and thought, oh, one day you will be mine. Uh, It was beautiful. And I, in a moment of absolute panic, I emailed him a few months ago and said, I really, really wanted that base, but it's been sold. And he said, well, that's okay. I can do you another one. Um, and we went through the options, and it, it's going to be lovely. I'm really looking forward to this. I am not anywhere near enough a good basis to thoroughly push it to its limits, but it's that ridiculous moment of midlife crisis that I think, yeah, I've been doing since for a while. I, I just need to get back into that weird bass groove because it's been so much a part of the music I've made without having a bass, which sounds ludicrous. It's the sort of thing that people say before turning the gun on themselves. <laughs> you know, I, But you know what I mean? It, it's... it's it, it's been such a part of my life, the bass guitar, and that's why having you in the band has been intriguing because I sort of found myself playing along <laughs> with these <laughs> synth lines, thinking it's kind of yeah, where I wouldn't go, so I wouldn't put anything there. And you've slotted so well into that that I, it reminds me that there's a little bit of my heart that will always be a bassist. There's the marking in you that will never, never leave. <laughs> Well, now with the status base, will will be a, a permanent feature. It's quite exciting. I'm, I'm having it set up in very much the marking fashion. There's nothing wrong with that <laughs> at all. Weirdly it, enough, though, talking about coordinated, I made a, a a very very kind of concerted effort to not play um, slap. I didn't want to go the the obvious route. The idea of having prominent bass means you know it's thumb and slap and and um. Which Dave Barbarossa was very, very supportive of. You know, mm. you know, you know don't do what's expected. Mm. You know, and there were a couple of tracks in the set where when we were running through it together, he goes, No, no, don't. <laughs> don't. Don't do that. No, don't. Don't. <laughs> don't, don't yeah. That's where you know where the lines are. Isn't yeah, it? Don't, yeah, don't, don't, don't do what you feel should be there. Do what. Is the opposite. Do something unexpected. Have fun. What what an amazing um, spec to have. Yeah. And with that, I thought, well, prominent bass. Normally, you know, you know, do the whole machine gun bit, <laughs> slap away like a motherfucker. <laughs> and instead, it's like, well, I don't know. I'll just go for pure aggression, mm. and that's become the the coordinated sound. Yet. Yeah, in terms of the, kind of the frequency range, it's still very slappy. It's it's even even though I'm not using my thumb, it, it it's not a, a million miles away from Heathrow and those early yeah. Yeah, yeah. those early level forty two recordings. <laughs>
It is. I mean, it, it's not the slap king, but it's the that definitely fingered, fingered, fast bass. And it, that's what I love about it, because it really fits in there. And it, interestingly, it, it's given a melody to non-melodic tracks. The, the melody comes in that sort of mid-range, which is very unusual. Um, and that, that's why it suits us so well, because it is, it's not something we would have planned. I, I couldn't write what you do. There's no way that I could say... I don't no, know if notes. I can write what I do. Can you remember what you do? <laughs> did somebody record the last yes. gig? Did we play a gig when we did? We do it all? <laughs> did anybody? What was the question? Yeah. Um, um, so, it's, yeah, it's a weird thing, isn't it? But but, but sorry, continue. Well, uh, the thing for me about that gaps thing, you know, I, I love it that Dave says that because that's always been our groove. That's how we've made the original feel thank you um on the coordinated vibe was very much i would send him something and he would fill the gaps and hit to when i send it to him it's a quirky rhythmic uh, sort of awkward slightly metronomic in places but he can see where the one is usually and then just goes off on one he fills the gaps and so eva came along and filled the gaps vocally but she's not melodic she's not a singer she's a deliverer of lyrics, which is beautiful, but it's not melodic. And so what you bought is the melody. And that, that's a, a weird twist and a wonderful twist. You've bought, I think I said it earlier, it's melody and rhythm, which I'll be pilloried for, I'm sure. If that were the quote that came out of this interview, I'll be burnt in some sort of stake, probably on the Isle of Wight by Mark King. But you know oh, what I mean? You yeah. wanker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine that, the, the little totem, uh, Wicker Man. <laughs> it's the perfect place to have a Wicker Man ending, though, let's face no, it. I'm glad you said that. The Isle of Wight. I, hang on, I haven't had my bass yet. Don't say too much before this bass when, arrives. When does, the, when does the status bass arrive? I'm promised pre-Christmas. Really? Mm. So is, is it as much as, you know, Bright, I'm going to get the, the graphic... Uh, the graphite designers to fabricate the neck and then how much of a workshop thing is it do you know no i mean all i know is it takes eight to ten oh eight to twelve weeks to produce um and he said he can get close but of course it won't be identical which i kind of loved you know he said i'm not going to just bang out another one of those and we talked about the finish and the word and everything it's very personalized and it's wonderful the way that he talks about the setup and the way that I play and so on. So he wanted to know everything about it. And there was that lovely sense of it being genuinely a, a work of art um, that he was producing rather than just, you know, which which of our many specs do you want? You know, select the, the code here and we'll produce you one of those. It was a very personalised thing, which is beautiful and way beyond my skills. I was itching to say to him in the emails, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I kind of love your basses and I, I remember playing bass a lot and I... I want it to sound like this. And funnily enough, everything that he was talking about, and this is, this is, I think is his skill, all the suggestions that he made were right. You know, he was, he got that sense of what I was trying to do with. I, I told him a bit about you know, what I was doing and immediately it was, yes, you know, this and that, and that'll be fine. And there was that one issue about the length of scale of it. And I think back in the day, my old Charvel was very long and deep and I've gone for the 32 now which is going to be a bit tighter, certainly at the top end of the neck, but I like that. I, I didn't like reaching quite so far because I was working so hard to get that rhythm. 
I'm very happy for it to be up close. I don't need, as you've heard, synths do the bottom end. I, I'm not thinking of the bass as a big, booming bottom end mm. thing. So a short, well, relatively short-scale bass with lighter strings is fine by me. I'd rather do that interesting noodleage. Um, noodleage. Noodleage on the bass. Bass noodleage no. to go in between the bass synth noodleage and the higher end synth noodleage. I only know four words. That's Yamaha, Memory Moog, noodleage, and horn. <laughs> As in Trevor. Yes. Do you need to know any other words? Well, it's a good question. <laughs> Could you survive in the music industry with just those four words? If you just walked in and said those four words, people would think you were amazingly equipped. So, so, so Harmon, <laughs> how, how, how much, how much is this bass setting you back? I'm not, I'm not going to sort such filthy detail <laughs> on the airwaves, um, but it's well, okay, it's fifty percent of what a properly MIDI retrofitted Jupiter Eight would be. If that puts it in context, right? So actually, it's a bargain. I would say that's not that's surprisingly cheap. I know, I, I know that price reference point. Yeah, I it's not cheap. Cheap. It's, it's not, cheaper than I would have thought. It's cheap for a sort of frippery of someone who's going to play on headphones and dance around in his pants playing the bass, isn't it? But it's not cheap. This is the second reference to pants. The first time was, was my writing you, attempts. Yeah, your yeah. writing attempts while watching Countdown. So in it's, a my way, self, it's my self-deprecating moment. <laughs> <laughs> were, were it not for Richard Whiteley's wit, would you have completed that novel? No, I had no book in me. I had nothing in me. I, I was flattered from a writing point of view, <laughs> but I was convinced. Actually, do you know, my crowning glory, um, and Matt Bell, if you're out there, please take, I mean, take a bow at this moment. Um, sound on Sound printed some of my articles because I thought, well, I can't write a novel. I'll write for someone else. And so I approached them. And they said, yeah, okay, well, what have you got in mind? And I sent them some ideas about articles. And they printed some of my articles, which for me was like being in the literary review or, you know, some sort of Nobel Prize winning review. I thought, this is it. I, I've finally You've made arrived. It. I've arrived. Um, and that was my crowning glory. Uh, you can still see it online. If you, if you Google me and Sound on Sound, you'll read about me writing about MIDI on the road and, more importantly, about the Cheetah MS6 analog synthesizer. Um, which was a little work of art that looked like a digital alarm clock, but it was a lovely sounding synth. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the book was not so much in you as much as the magazine article was in you. Yeah, the, the urgent need to earn money to eat um, took over. Yeah, there's nothing like appetite to... Well, uh, I also realised that I don't actually like books. That was the problem. I, it wasn't as if I was a voracious reader. I, I hadn't read anything since university. So I, I, I read French literature at university and it broke me completely. I haven't read a book since. Um, because you, you have to analyse everything to the nth degree. You've got professors saying, well, what does this mean? Um, I, I don't I, fucking I, I, know. I honestly don't know. Um, so you go through this whole process. And it, actually, it was a fascinating process and it did open my mind academically. But... Ever since then, I've had a real struggle with reading. You know, I, I have nightmares. So I, I don't actually read books at all. So this was not a good start for someone who professes to be an author. I think what I meant was I quite like writing a sentence. I wrote the best intro to about 10 books of all time. Um, right. I've got 10 really good first pages. Oh, yes. I'm all over that. It's when the you, night it's the was sultry. <laughs> <laughs> it's much like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wasn't sure what had happened, but it felt good. 
Oh. Now that, I mean, I, I was in, at that point, I thought, yes, this is it, we're on. Uh, then Countdown came on, so I watched that. And then nothing happened. I, I, I got to the end of the first page and thought, yes, yes. Mm. Then I found myself dropping in the occasional Douglas Adams bit and I thought oh, yeah, he's done that I can't just we're back I'm... to another level 42 reference there <laughs> quacky yes we are I hadn't thought that but yes yes we are so but in a way though you had the best intro which is I'm trying to come up with a variation on your name <laughs> Nathan Disharmony was sat in his pants he couldn't do much as Countdown was on the telly <laughs> Should I have written my own tragic story? Is this what you're saying? Uh, yeah. If uh, write about what you know, some sort of sad halfway muso <laughs> sitting in a cupboard. I want to yeah. read that. Yeah, I, I'd happily read He's that. He's in his pants. <laughs> Countdown's on. Yeah. Care of Alderman, eh? No, never, never for me. Really? Yeah. Susie Dent. Now we're talking. Yeah, oh. I'm very much more a Susie Dent sort of person. So, what is it about you and horsey women? <laughs> okay. Well. This is a, a, a well, it's a two-level thing. First and foremost, very practical. I mean, they're out there at the crack of dawn, come hell or high water, six o'clock in the morning. They're sorting out the horses. They're going out for a ride. Very fit, physically fit. Yeah, nothing will stop them. You know, they are they are absolutely tremendous from that point of view. These are the horsey women. Horsey women, equestrian yeah. women, equestrian yeah. ladies. Um, the downside is they're out with the horses at six o'clock in the morning. Right. So any idea that you get you will ever be intimate with any of them is ridiculous because they're all the hours at which you think hello, nothing, absolutely nothing. I've been out horsing around. (laughs) I will not spend any time with you. And when they do get back, they're absolutely knackered. So you know you go to bed and they'll tell you stories about what sort of Jiminy did on the second jump, and you think okay. Um, So it's annoying, but. What I find enthralling about them is, is their proactivity and their independence and they get out there and they do stuff. So they're very practical people. Secondly, enormously fit, physically fit. You cannot ride all day, every day and not be physically fit because it is a hugely demanding sport. Hmm. So there's the aesthetic. The aesthetic. And my God, they look good in jobbers. Are there any archetype equestrian women mm-hmm. who come to mind when... You're thinking about this particular type of feminine. See, that's difficult, isn't it? Because no one knows any equestrian women. I mean, Charlotte Dujardin? Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, so uh, it's a difficult... The FEI... uh, Okay, so champion riders... So she, you she's, really know your champion, right? No, I, no I, you know, I've, I've occasionally tuned into the Country Channel. <laughs> Horse and Country Hello, on Sky. welcome to the Country Channel. There's <laughs> you know a, a wonderful Abs- filly. I did notice that as, as the Horse and Country Channel went on Sky, they had terrible sound. And I thought, you know what? What they need is a sound engineer. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I would be arrested within a day. <laughs> um, but yeah. So, I mean, I like the practical, sort of petite, very fit girls who are out there doing stuff. I like proactive girls. It's about the doing stuff. It's about the getting out and doing stuff, not leasing around, you know? Are there any thespian people or television personalities or musicians of note who fit that particular bill? Okay. Now, see, what the tricky. I, Mr. I, Harmon I, I, is looking for love and we're trying to find love well, for that's him. It. Yeah, so, yeah, please do text in yeah, <laughs> any, any potentials. Um, I, do you know what? Lucy Worsley. 
will right. always have a place in my heart. It's I, about history. I'm enjoying her intelligence. I'm enjoying her look. I'm enjoying that slight speech impediment. Mm. And it's all good. I, I'm enjoying that. That sort of the intelligent, homely girl next door, slender-looking mess. Yeah, I mean, that's all good. She lives not far from here, and it's very easy to meet her at specific times of the day. Do you mean stalk her? Yes. Okay. She is sadly <laughs> taken, though. Is she? Yes. By she, who? Um, by a very lucky man. Oh, okay. But uh, are there others? Talk to me. Um, <laughs> okay. So, back in the day, it would have been Vicky Butler Henderson. I thought she was very practical, very... Um, not so much now. I it, it was a, it was a, a roller coaster ride with her. Right. Um, I think we'd be. Michaela Strachan has always been a favourite of mine. Not back in the day, but actually as she gets older, I think she is the classic look of the girl next door. Very practical, very outdoorsy, no trouble at all, just great fun. You're aware of the level forty two connection with her? No. Married to Gary Barnacle, the sax player. We played on many, <laughs> many, like tap, uh, many, many Level 42 tracks. No. Whether or not they're still married, I don't know, but they certainly were married. Gary Barnacle. I did not know that. Gary Barnacle, um, Level 42, there's a link. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Uh, I, I did not know that. Your horsiness and your, um, well, f- for want of a much better word, kind of jazz funk roots are all coming together. Oh, so there is actually a chance she might fall for me if I met her. Is it, Absolutely, I mean, still, yes. still in, I'm still in the tunnel. She might think, world. you know, that yeah. Gary and the sax parts, it wasn't about the sax parts, it was all about the bass. Well, you know, nobody's ever got to the end of uh, any tape playback in a control room and said, what that track needs is more sax. Yeah. Um, no. Whereas with bass, you always go, well, yeah, maybe it's a bit more, more bass. bass. Yeah. Yeah. Bass, how long can you go? Mute the sax, there's no need for yeah. that. Yeah, fuck the sax player. Well, but she did. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think they got... I mean, as they were sort of tracking down Saving Private Ryan, they didn't go, sax. That's what sax. we need. Sax. Yeah. Just more. on the beaches. Sax. <laughs> Kenny G. Yeah. On the, uh, uh, it's all about Kenny G. Any other kind of horsey women? I've known, For some reason, not, I don't know why, I think about Kate Humble. Does she do it for you? Not uh, Yes. Yes, but... She looks a bit frizzy and complicated. Now, Countryfile, Ellie... um, You'll have to help me there. Ellie something or other from Countryfile. Right. Similar, but a bit more down-to-earth, a bit more friendly. Wouldn't be quite so cross if I left my crumpets in the toaster for too long. So you have a bit of a fear about Kate Humble then? Yeah, I I think she'd be... Kate Humble, you reckon, on an off day, an off hour, could kick your ass? Yeah, I think so. Right, fair enough. I I would fear her reprisals. I'd, I'd have to carry a nine millimeter in my sock just in case it all kicked off and i don't right. want to have to do that is it a luger <laughs> p38 <laughs> no, no no i mean it would have to be something compact um i i i would worry yeah i think she could turn i don't think ellie would i don't even know her surname but i think she's lovely ellie countryfile yeah ellie countryfile, countryfile is a surname that's the one um yeah I mean, the girl from my robot, Bridget Moynihan, is that right? Oh, uh, right, yeah, yeah. So, Bridget no, there, there, is, there is a pattern yeah. there. I think we're looking at basically practical, capable, intelligent, slender, look amazing in jobbers, 
That's about it. I, I'm not, I don't consider myself demanding. And if that is you, please <laughs> contact us at the Geeky Radio Show. Well, I mean, it would be a beautiful moment. I mean, imagine if that, I mean, imagine if this did create a beautiful moment. Would this be your first wedding on the Geeky Radio Show? Yes. Well. Could coordinator play the wedding? Well, I mean, we'd have to sort out the PA, but yeah. I, Man, they need to get the drums right. Imagine that. Yeah. Fucking I hell. gather the drummer's a real Double pain. first. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Harmon, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the Dookie Radio Show. The pleasure is all mine. And as for those women in jodhpurs, <laughs> please contact the Dookie abs- Radio Show directly. <laughs> I feel that extra bottle of Spain's not-so-finest may have been ill-advised. For me, anyway. David Harmon was an absolute joy to have on the show, and, for whatever it's worth, the banter carried on long after the recording light ceased to be illuminated, and I became more David Frost-like, and not in a Frost-Nixon type of manner, as the evening carried on. You've been listening to part two of The Best Gear of Our Lives, an interview with David Harmon. My name is Dukey, and despite the vino, I've been your host. May the worst of tomorrow be the best of yesterday. Now it's time for me to go and pop my weasel. Thanks for listening. Half a pound of tuppany rice, half a pound of treacle. That's the way the money goes. Pop goes the weasel. Click on your mouse to our Facebook page Facebook It's easy to find, it will not take an age Facebook www.facebook.com Forward slash The Dukey Radio Show The Dukey Radio Show The thin white Dukey is right. Click your way to the Dukey Radio Show Facebook page. www.facebook.com forward slash the Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. The Dukey Radio Show. This is called Why Do Blood Relations Always Ruin the Holidays? Add name of holiday here. Is going to suck. I wish you were on holiday.